Listener Production. Do you know what happens inside our bodies when we get too hot? Well, it's not pretty. You start to have problems with the actual membranes of the cells in your body. Mm. The, the lipids that make up the cell walls begin to actually, what scientists call, denature or melt. Um, you start hemorrhaging inside, and basically your body kind of melts from the inside, and it's a really horrible way to go. Batman is one of Rolling Stone magazine's most prolific writers. His name is Jeff Goodall, and he's written a book called Heat, and it spent four weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. And I'm not surprised it's getting some interest, given the huge and frightening heat records that have been broken by this Northern Hemisphere summer. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. In this briefing, an in-depth interview with Jeff Goodell, author of Heat, as he explains what heat does to human beings and the reality we face in a warming world. First, here are today's big headlines. Good morning. It is Jan Fran here for the headlines and it is Thursday the 24th of August and we are starting with a developing story coming out of Russia. The leader of the Wagner Group, uh, he was the one who led the failed coup in Russia two months ago, is suspected to have died on a plane crash. So this story is still developing but what we know so far is that Yevgeny Prigozhin was on the 10-person passenger list of a jet that has crashed. Now, all passengers are thought to have died, although it hasn't entirely been confirmed that he was definitely on board. Uh, What happened was that it crashed within 30 minutes of being in flight between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Russia's air transport agency is currently launching an investigation as we speak. So a social media account, Tom, that was linked to Wagner has alleged that the plane was shot down by Russian air defence forces. Yeah, well, that's an interesting detail. I mean, there's a long history of political opponents of Vladimir Putin being taken out. Often they've been shot. Uh, Also, poisonings, of course, are fairly common in Russian politics. The other interesting thing about this story is that Yevgeny Prigozhin was only just cited in a video yesterday for the first time in quite a while, and it appeared that he was in Africa. He was talking about the work the Wagner Group was doing there and saying that the temperature was over 50 degrees and he was um, in the desert. So, strange set of circumstances playing out here. Yeah, a lot of unknowns at this point and it's, it might be one of those things where the more that we know, the more we don't know. Watch this space. India has made space history. Yeah. India is on the moon. There it is. So India is now the fourth nation in the world to have landed a rocket on the moon and the first to ever do so on the moon's dark side. So the huge populous nation stood still as a spacecraft touched down near the South Pole on the moon overnight. And scientists are now setting their sights on a manned mission to the moon. It comes just days after Russia's failed mission crashed into the lunar surface. Yeah, it can't be great for Russia watching India do this successfully. Huge celebrations, uh, you you heard there, clapping, cheering, because India is the fourth country ever after the United States, China, and of course, uh, the former Soviet Union to manage a successful moon landing. The US still remains the only country to actually put a man on the moon, but I mean, hugely signifying India on the rise. It's coming in hot. Yeah, literally on the rise all the way to the moon. They are now the biggest, the most populous country in the world, overtaking China 
in April, and it, it really appears that India is surging ahead, particularly as China goes through real economic turmoil. And a slightly different change of pace here. Do you remember the Fire Festival? The doomed, <laughs> terrible Fire Festival. Well, here is some news for you. It's back. It's returning for a second edition, according to its founder, Billy McFarland, who, by the way, was jailed for defrauding investors out of $40 million. It has been the absolute wildest journey to get here, and it really all started during the seventh month stint in solitary confinement. I wrote out this 50-page plan of how it would take this overall interest and demand in fire and how it would take my ability to bring people from around the world together to make the impossible happen. Wow. I don't know what to even make mm. of this story. That there is Billy McFarland on his Instagram uh, announcing that pre-sale tickets for Fire Festival 2.0 have not only gone on sale, but apparently the first round has been sold out. I don't, I don't know who's buying these tickets. I don't even know if that's true. Um, will you be attending Fire Festival 2.0, Tom? I can't even keep the joke out of my voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, look, I, I didn't really enjoy the first one. Not having any water or anywhere to stay was quite scary and um, I was very let down by my experience of the first one, so I don't think I'll be going to the second mm. one. Um, I mean, look, seriously, I... It seems like one of those fake news stories. You know those stories that when, when fake news was a massive thing, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that's true. It's like, well, that's that's because it's not. So I don't know. This feels like some kind of publicity stunt or joke, unless it's sort of like a new form of like disaster festival tourism that's taking off. I mean, potentially. You've got to remember, this guy pled guilty to defrauding investors. He served four years in prison and he was fined $39 million dollars. He doesn't mind a bit of publicity. Uh, he said that he was involved in making, in teaming up with the biggest production company in the world and making the documentary. That wasn't a good thing, mate. And also being involved in Fire Festival, the musical. So he's sort of geeing himself up as like this media mogul. <laughs> anyway, good luck to you, Billy. And here's a genius idea. Sam Kerr football academies are set to open around the country next year to develop the next generation of goal scorers. Uh, the Matildas captain has launched the school off the back of the success of the Women's World Cup and the program will be developed under her guidance, tailored for children aged between 3 and 14. And online registrations are already open. I imagine that might be quite popular. Brilliant idea. I mean, really capitalising on uh, a, a big moment here and good for her. We already know that sign-ups into soccer or football, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what to call it, um, have been turbocharged because of the Matildas World Cup campaign. So this makes total sense. It's funny, isn't it, whether we call it soccer or football? Like, now that we've had this moment, I feel like we need to respect the game more by calling it football like the rest of the world does, but we have three other football codes here in Australia, so it does get confusing. I think we should call it Sam Kerball. <laughs> Kerball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Jam, we'll catch you later. I'm about to bring you this really fascinating interview about the true impact of heat on humanity. Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine and he's been writing for Rolling Stone for over 30 years and he's here in the briefing studio to talk about his new book called Heat. 
It's been selling very well in America. The full title there is called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. When we talk about climate change, we often focus on the planet and the way it's changing and the damage we're doing to it. But your book really puts the focus on the way a changing climate affects us through heat. So how sensitive is the human body to heat? Uh, Very. As everyone knows, you know, as soon as you go to the doctor or something, the first thing they want to know is, like, what is your temperature? And Mm. and so our our body's regulating of temperature is really important to all of the sort of healthy functions Mm. of, of our system, of our metabolism. And we're really good at dealing with heat within a certain range, what I call in the books the sort of Goldilocks zone that we've evolved in for millions of years. But when we get out of that range... Um, that's when trouble happens. Yeah, and you write about some heartbreaking stories from the US, like this couple that go on a hike with their baby and their dog, and they just don't realize how much the heat is going to affect them, and they die. So this really goes to the title of your book, The Heat Will Kill You First. What happens in most cases when we die from the heat? What's going on in our bodies? Well, it's not pretty... (laughs) Um, you know, our, our our bodies are really finely tuned machines to deal with, you know, heat within the range that we're used to dealing with. And, you know, the first thing that happens when we get it, when our body temperature starts to rise is our heart starts pounding faster to move blood out to the surface of our skin. We have one cooling mechanism. It works pretty well most of the time, which is sweat. As everyone knows, you get hot, you start sweating. The sweat evaporates off your skin that carries the heat away and it cools the blood under the skin mm-hmm. and that recirculates through your body. That works fine until um, you get into conditions where that is not sufficient and your body temperature starts rising. Your heart starts pounding faster, pushing more and more blood out towards your skin, pulling it away from your brain, away from your internal organs. That's why you feel lightheaded sometimes when, mm. you, when, you're, when you're really hot. Sometimes people even get hallucinogenic. And if the heat keeps rising and if you have any kind of um, circulatory or heart problems, if you're on medications like diuretics or beta blockers, things that impinge on your sort of thermal regulatory system, you, are, you start getting in trouble really quickly. Some people with heart conditions, you know, have heat strokes and, and die very early in this process. If your temperature keeps rising and once it, it gets, if it gets a little bit, a few degrees hotter, you start to have problems with the actual membranes of the cells in your body. Mm. The, the lipids that make up the cell walls begin to actually, what scientists call, denature or melt. Um, you start hemorrhaging inside, and basically uh, your body kind of melts from the inside, and it's um, a really a kind of horrible way to go. So essentially that's the process of cooking from the inside. Right. Yep. Okay. So you write about life in America at the moment. We've been watching the heat waves in um, America, the wildfires in Canada, what's been going on in Europe around the Mediterranean with the fires and the heat wave there. What is life like now in America? I know in some cities like Phoenix, you have like a chief heat officer. So what's life like and how are people living with it? Well, I live in Austin, Texas, and Austin is one of the hottest places in the country. And I just checked this morning, I've been here in Australia for a few days, but we've now had 34 days um, above 42C, 43C, wow. and it's brutal. You know, you, be, you live a vampire life. You know, you, you stay in during the day yeah. and, you, and you go out at night. Um, in Phoenix, Arizona, where the temperatures have been extreme, also, you know, the emergency rooms are full of people who are having some, some version of a heat stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when people fall on sidewalks or if you're an unhoused person and you're living on the street, they're getting third-degree burns from the extreme temperatures of the sidewalks and the asphalt and things like that. You know, it's really brutal. It has an impact on our economy. Uh, I talked to an official in, in Houston right before I left who talked about how it's so hot right now, and, and it's, as it continues to get hotter, all construction in Houston is going to have to start moving to nighttime, wow. um, which is a, a kind of an amazing idea to think about. And when you think about the implications of that, because it's simply too hot for outdoor workers who are um, you know, the most vulnerable in these kinds of temperatures. Okay, so that's really interesting, doing hard labor at night. And it speaks to the way humans adapt and evolve, both you know, through our behavior and physiologically. You go right back hundreds of thousands of years into human evolution. And you talk about the way we developed sweat glands, the way we became more hairless, and that was to adapt to the heat. So are we going to adapt and deal with the heat now? No. Uh, <laughs> sadly, no. Uh, you know, evolution takes uh, a very long time. These changes that happened uh, to our body happened over millions of years. Mm. What's happening now as we burn fossil fuels, load the atmosphere with CO2, pushing these temperatures higher and higher, is these changes are happening very fast. You know, it's really important to stop burning fossil fuels as quickly as possible, get to net zero emissions. That's the only thing that will that will stop the temperature rise. But we are not going to evolve our way out of this. There's lots of things we can do in adapting mm-hmm. to these changes by everything from democratizing air conditioning, getting more air conditioning to more people, making better uh, laws for outdoor workers so that they don't die of heat stroke during these extreme heat events, building cities with more trees, more cooling spaces, more public areas where people can go that are cooler. But we are not going to biologically you know, evolve our way to be humans that can tolerate life on a 50C planet. What about migration? Because your book paints a bit of a mixed picture on that where there are some um, climate-related migrants, already, you know, that's already happening, but other people you write up are moving to some of the hottest areas of America that have been some of the fastest growing in the whole country. So what's the overall picture like? Are lots of people already moving because of the climate and what does the future look like? I'm one of those people who moved from a relatively cool part of the United Mm. States to one of the hottest places uh, because I fell in love with a woman who lived there and I wanted to be with her. So migration is complex, obviously. People move for lots of different reasons, Um, cheap real estate, lower taxes, better Mm. jobs, family matters, things like that. But in the big picture, climate, heat, sea level rise, all those sorts of things are going to be and already are a big driver in migration. We're going to see that more and more. It's inevitable. Um, it's a big issue here in Australia. It's a big issue mm-hmm. in Texas where I live, you know, with uh, the border, migrants coming across the border. I mean, every living thing, you know, the way one of the ways they deal with heat is to try to move to a cooler place. Mm-hmm. You know, frogs try to migrate higher up the, up the mountain to, to a higher and cooler altitude. Humans will move eventually to cooler places because life in those hot places just gets unbearable and too difficult, even if you have air conditioning. You know, where I live in Texas, I have to think twice about walking, you know, a hundred yards out to my mailbox in the middle of the day. It's just Mm. so hot. And like, I'm living there now, but at a certain point, people will say, I don't want to live this way anymore. If you live in a place where the seas are rising quickly and you're getting flooded often, if you're getting these extreme rainfall events like we've seen here in, in um, Australia uh, and constant flooding, you know, people are going to move. And mm. that's going to be very disruptive politically and in all kinds of uh, other ways. 
You tell a really sad story about a woman who got her power cut off because she was too poor and she died soon afterwards because it came during a real hot spell, which raises the whole question of who can afford to stay cool in a hot world? I mean, how do we deal with that problem? Yeah, that's a huge problem and a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's one thing to say, oh, people should just get air conditioning. But, you know, I spent a lot of time while I was reporting this book talking with and spending time with people who, first of all, had no means to get air conditioning. And we have to remember that there are billions of people on the planet who are who live like that, who do not have access and will not have access to air conditioning anytime soon. But there's also a lot of people who have access to air conditioning but don't have the means to really run it because it's expensive. And they have to make constantly make a decision. Do I want to run my AC for an hour or two today or do I want to have enough money to buy dinner, basically? And that kind of arbitrage is a, is a daily thing for a lot of people. Jeff, you've come to Australia at a very interesting time, climate-wise. Um, we're all sitting here watching the heat waves and the wildfires in the Northern Hemisphere, watching these records fall, like the hottest month in 120,000 years, last month, July. And a lot of people are anxious about the summer ahead. We're coming out of a triple La Nina, very wet couple of years, into an El Nino hot, dry summer. We're already having a hot, dry winter. What are the conversations like you're having here? A lot of uh, apprehension, a lot of concern. There's no question that this heat is coming. The bushfires, all that that we're seeing in Maui right now, you know, that's not unlike, you know, what you've seen here in Australia. And our job and your job as Australians and our jobs as citizens of the planet is to is to be aware of this and prepare for this and to think intelligently about these risks and what we can do in advance mm. to reduce the risks of, of bushfires, to get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible, to build cooler cities, to think intelligently about this world that we've created. Mm. Yeah, tell us more about your thoughts on what we should do right now. Obviously, an energy transition is probably the most important thing, but that is taking a lot of time and it's still at a very expensive point as we transition out of fossil fuels into renewables. In and around that, uh, including the way we change our lives, as you say, build our cities, what do you think our key focuses should be in the short to medium term? We need to, first of all, get a lot smarter about how we kind of educate ourselves about things like extreme heat, what to do. We have to get a lot smarter about how we message around it, how we alert people to the risks. We're really good in Australia. I've been here during cyclones and typhoons. And, you know, there's really good messaging around that, about what to do, where to go, how to handle it. Not so much about like things like heat waves. Mm. Um, and we need to get a lot better at that. We in the media are not really good at that. We need to get way better at building cool spaces in cities, you know, thinking differently about that access for the people who are most vulnerable. You know, the problem with heat is that, as I describe in the book, it's a predatory force. It, it preys on the most vulnerable people. Mm. You know, just the, there was just a study last month from in, in Nature, one of the best science publications, saying that 60,000 people died in the summer in Europe last year. I mean, that's an enormous, mm. from heat, from extreme heat. That's an enormous death toll. And, and I think most people would agree that's probably an undercount. So we need to address that, people who are vulnerable. How do we deal with people who are unhoused during these kinds of extreme heat weather, people who can't afford to pay their electricity bills, people who don't have access to air conditioning? All that kind of stuff is really urgent. Great to speak to you, Jeff. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. 
Jeff Goodell, Rolling Stone writer and author of Heat, his seventh book. And I found it a really useful read. It gives such a graphic and comprehensive understanding of heat and the way it impacts us human beings. And I think part of the challenge with understanding the impending impacts of climate change is that us human beings are very self-interested. So you can talk about sea levels rising, glaciers melting, new deserts, but it doesn't hit home as hard as talking about what happens directly to us, which is why I think Jeff's latest work is so impactful. Listener.